We're continuing today with Mark's Gospel and chapter 2. We will focus on verses 18 to 22. We have then this exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. I'm not sure when exactly this took place. This may have taken place during the same feast that we looked at last week. In any case, the disciples of John the Baptist and those who follow the ways of the Pharisees were said to fast. And here it's the disciples of John at the, at the very least who approached Jesus directly to ask him a question. Possibly while Jesus was still eating, they asked him, Why do all the followers of John and the Pharisees fast regularly, but your disciples don't? The, the, the followers of John and those who preferred the ways of the Pharisees were slightly different groups. They had some things in common, but they differed in other ways. Uh, one thing they had in common was that they fasted regularly. Now, the Lord of Moses didn't require people to fast routinely. Uh, sure, we, we, we do see plenty of examples of fasting in the Old and New Testaments, but God's people were never ordered to fast on a regular basis. By the time Jesus came to this world, the Jews had added greatly to the law of Moses. They built up a body of teaching by their wise ancestors, and those sayings were referred to more than scripture itself. You may remember that Jesus accused the Jews of nullifying the law through all these additions that they'd made. Uh, that The habit under examination today was that of fasting twice a week. You might remember that last week I referred to a story Jesus told of a Pharisee in the temple. The Pharisee reminded God in his prayer of how he fasted twice a week. He was essentially laying out his piety to God. And of course, we said that he left the temple still in spiritual darkness. So we had this religious habit developed by Jesus' time. The Jews would fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And the disciples of John, even though they'd been renewed in their religion through a fresh repentance and a, and a baptism by John, retained this habit of fasting twice a week. I want to think about fasting itself for a moment. Some believers think fasting always means complete abstention from food. Now, not only was this not always true, uh, there's a danger that we might miss the point of fasting if we focus too much on the outward act of depriving ourselves. When we express our Christian faith in any way, it must come from the heart. It's always the way of false religion to emphasise external acts, the clothing, incense, the noise masquerading as worship. Now, if we afflict our souls in any way for the purpose of religious devotion, it must only be as a natural outworking of an inner experience. Let me read something interesting from Isaiah 58. It's Isaiah 58 and verses 6 to 7. 
and God says is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that thou bring the poor that, that are cast out to thy house when thou seest the naked that thou cover him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh so if as part of some personal or national repentance we abstain for a while from those things normally enjoyed God will not be displeased in fact insofar as it reflects an inward repentance he is delighted to see it fasting then is usually associated with mourning or repentance you take a look at Psalm 90 sorry Psalms 69 and verse 10 you'll read when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting that was to my reproach in our passage the ultra-religious types were fasting not to accompany inward repentance though but just as, as a mere ritual which they believed would be pleasing in God's sight well Jesus's answer to the question put to him includes this principle he employs the picture of a wedding it's a time of great celebration and happiness those people at the wedding who've been assigned the job of looking after the bridegroom would be expected to be in high spirits it would be very strange indeed if the groom's attendants were mourning as if someone had died they would be joyful the only reason for the attendants to be mournful is if the groom was suddenly taken from them or killed or something was there a reason that Jesus used the picture of a marriage well if you know your Old Testament you may well be aware that God himself is described as a bridegroom and his people as his bride take a look at Isaiah 62 it says in Isaiah 62 that for as a young man marrieth a virgin so shall thy sons marry thee and as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride so shall thy God rejoice over thee the Lord Jehovah is described as the husband of one wife and that wife is his elect people the imagery is even clearer in Jeremiah chapter 31 this is in verse 32 it says not according to the covenant that I had made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they break although I was a husband unto them saith the Lord a husband in Mark's account Jesus appears to be ascribing the, the title of groom or husband to himself and if we dismiss the notion that there are two husbands we must conclude that Jesus is here claiming to himself a divine title John the Baptist testifies as much when he says in John 3 and 29 he says he that hath the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him 
rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. John was the friend of the bridegroom, which was Christ. And elsewhere in the book of Revelation, this is in the 21st chapter and verse 9, it says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Jesus Christ, being God, is the husband of the church, his bride. And you who are believers can rightly consider yourselves individually, as it were, married to him. He chose you in eternity. He sought you out when you came into this world. He put away your sinful past so that you would be to him a beautiful, spotless bride. He clothed you with a wedding garment and he put a ring on your finger as a token of the vows he makes to you in the promises of the gospel. Such powerful imagery and such great love. In the example he gives here, Jesus not only describes himself as the groom, but his disciples as his attendants. So he says quite rightly that these attendants, these disciples, are happy while Jesus is with them. Then, by a glimpse of the end which Jesus would have to face, he tells them that this bridegroom would not be with them much longer. It is then that they would be sad. It is then that they would fast, having had their friend taken from them. I'd like to inject just a brief word about the role of fasting in the life of today's believers. It isn't enough to say that just because people in the Old Testament fasted, or that the apostles fasted, or that even Jesus himself fasted, that it is something we should do. However, when you look at the reasons that people did fast in the Bible, we see that it's associated with inward feelings that are definitely still the experience of Christians today. Do we not, not still mourn over the state of the world around us? Do, do we not still lament at our own addiction to sin? Do we not still afflict our souls in prayer for the salvation of those who we love? If so, then fasting is not only a legitimate expression of Christian experience, but it is to be encouraged. It's not, though, to be done as a weekly, monthly or annual ritual. But if, as an individual, you feel especially burdened about some issue, it would be good and proper for you to afflict your soul before God. And remember that the affliction is chiefly internal, it is an uncommon desperation in prayer, a heart-rending appeal to God that he might have mercy and grant your request. And Likewise, there might be a church-wide call for a day of prayer and fasting, and this too is also a good practice. Remember that fasting does not necessarily mean complete abstinence, abstinence from food. As I mentioned earlier, it could be a 
complete abstinence for a short time. It could be a reduction in intake of food, maybe over a longer period. Or it could be, could be a dramatic simplifying of your diet for, for a while. But it could also be a denial of things other than food. For example, you might be asked to take part in an early morning prayer meeting with the church, meaning that you're deprived of sleep. The disciples knew something of the truth of that old saying, in God's presence is fullness of joy. They were really with him, but it was not to last. The bridegroom that they were to attend to for several years would be taken from them and killed because he had promised in the timeless existence he had before he made the world to be the one to redeem his people from their sins. He agreed to be the one to step into the sinner's place and bear the punishment himself. We read in Isaiah 53 and verse 8, He, Jesus, was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. We could say, we could say that the grief was short-lived. Within just a few days of his death, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples. Truly their mourning was turned to joy. But he had to leave them a second time. He had to ascend back to his father's side. And by this we mean that he was to reclaim the glory and honour he had in heaven before the world was. And just like the grave, this sinful earth, as it were, ejected him as one who did not belong. It was necessary for him to be made a little lower than the angels, but this was only ever a means to an end and was to be temporary. The heavenly throne of glory pulled on him like a magnet. He is today where he belongs. If that were the whole story, we would have cause to spend the rest of our days sorrowful. Yet, in his departure, he promises to send a different helper, the Holy Spirit of God himself. And it's by the presence of the Holy Spirit that it can be truly said that Christ is with us and in us. So then, as Christians, we can say, we can say Sorry, we can be, be said to be both with Jesus and separated from him. Because we, we are at his right hand now. And the pleasures of being with him that are to last forever have already begun in us. We are with Jesus Christ. We are in Jesus Christ. But it gets better. For in the world to come, there's a closeness of fellowship with Jesus Christ that we cannot presently experience. The best, my friends, is most certainly yet to come. Well, get, getting back to our passage. 
we see Jesus using two examples of something. You'll be forgiven for reading this and wondering what these two examples have to do with the issue of fasting. Now before we think about any of that, we'll examine the, the real life details on which his teaching is based here. I think the first example would make more sense to the modern reader than the other one. We all know the clothes shrink when washed. And if I'm right, most of the shrinkage happens when something is washed for the first time. After the clothing has been worn and washed several times, the shrinkage then stops. And people long ago learned that if you had a hole in some item of clothing, you shouldn't use a piece of brand new material because you'd sew on this nice new patch. But when the whole garment gets washed, the new patch will shrink. And as it shrinks, it will pull on the edges of the original garment and cause tearing. And you could end up with more damage done to the garment than when you started. In his second example, Jesus refers to the storing of wine in bottles. I, I just need to remind you this, you know, there was a time when this authorised version of ours was a modern version. You understand? When it first came out, it was a modern version. And it, in their translation from the Greek, the translators, uh, they'll of course use words that were more relevant to the modern readers of their age, the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, in this case, I, I sort of wish they'd have left the word uh, alone. The, the, Bottles, you know, to us means something different. These were not glass bottles. These, these wine containers were animal skins. And so the example won't make much sense unless you're aware of that. So I thought I would mention that. So wine skins. Um, so new wine skins were, 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 were strong and they were flexible. So wine that was still fermenting would be given off gas, of course, but new wineskins would expand to, to cope with the increased pressure. But old wineskins became less elastic and more brittle. So the risk with using an old wineskin with new wine was that the build-up of pressure would cause the wineskin to split. So we've looked at the sort of the background the biblical manners and customs but the question remains what does this have to do with fasting it was Jesus intention with the examples to make some point and the point he, he made must be in response to the question he was asked so in order to get behind Jesus response to see what form the rebuke was taken we need to think about the differences between the fasting practiced by those religious folk and that practiced by Christians. You remember that the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, described man's natural righteousness as nothing but filthy rags. If we think of our natural goodness as an item of clothing, that that garment would be worn out, full of holes, filthy. Even in, the, even, in, even in that old garden when the first man made a covering for his nakedness, it was insufficient. 
and in replacing Adam's homemade covering with one he made himself, God makes it clear that the only garment, the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is one that is given by him. Every human being in their natural state will invent their own morality. Aside from some exceptions, maybe people with severe mental health issues, everyone thinks themselves good. They may admit to making mistakes. They may freely confess that they are no angel, but they reason that on balance, they're decent people. And they reason that even if there is a judgment to be faced at the end of time, they think on the balance of goodness, they must emerge justified. And it's like the Jews. Paul says in his letter to the church at Rome, uh, if you want the reference, it's Romans 10 and verse 3. It says, For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They believe that their righteousness came from obedience to the law. The trouble is, of course, no one's able to keep the law absolutely. And the law is inflexible. It does not give the benefit of the doubt. It does not allow conformity to the law in one area to make up for the breaking of it in another area. It is merciless. The main character in Bunyan's Pilgrim's uh, Progress, you might remember, at, so, at one point he was being beaten by Moses. When the pilgrim asks for mercy, Moses answers, I know not how to show mercy. And Moses there represents the Mosaic law. So, for their whole lives, through reliance on law-keeping, the Jews were fashioning for themselves a righteousness that had no more use than the fig leaf suit made by Adam. And this filthy garment of righteousness cannot be repaired. If it's patched up with old cloth, it will remain an old, filthy, inadequate garment. And if they try to repair it with something new, it will be further damaged. There might be an outburst of repentance. They might go and be baptised by John for the remission of sins. But whatever they adopt, be it ever so new, it cannot be used to mend the rags they wear. When the gospel comes to a man in Holy Spirit power, he becomes immediately aware of the utter inadequacy of his own righteousness. The brightness of the gospel shows the filth on the garments of his supposed goodness. And if a man is to be saved, he must discard his creation. As Adam threw down his fig leaf covering to the ground, so must every other sinner come to God naked. He comes to God with nothing and asks for everything. Remember the words of Top Lady that we sing in that great hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. The great tailor welcomes 
helpless ones in and presents to them a robe of righteousness prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And the man or woman so clothed sees how their new garment of righteousness is an exact copy of the one worn by the tailor himself, even Jesus Christ. Listen to this in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. I'd like us to spend just a few more minutes considering Jesus' second example about the wineskins. The natural man is likened to an old wineskin. He is inflexible in his commitment to sin. He is beginning to show cracks following a life of bitterness. All that lies ahead is to be discarded. And for such a man, this means he will be forever trapped in a state of unhappiness and despair in God's hell. We can think of this new wine as the gospel. It is a message about a new and better covenant that God makes with man. This new wine cannot be stored in old wineskins. That is, the gospel is of no benefit to a man if he remains in his natural state. Think about those people who show all the signs of conversion. They claim to embrace the gospel. The, the person doing this is just filling the old wineskins of their souls with new principles that cannot long exist there. Their lives might be temporarily affected. Their, their conversion will no doubt cause celebration amongst the Lord's people, believing that profession to be genuine. But the characteristics of the new man are incompatible with the characteristics of the old man. Like the wineskins of ancient times, these, these unregenerate individuals will just be cast aside by God. But there is a way for this wine of the new covenant to find vessels suitable to contain it. When we hear the gospel sound, it discloses to us that we are like those old wineskins. We realise that our time will soon be up. And God shows us that we are wholly unsuitable to be vessels acceptable to him. In this scene then we are now drawn to God as the great potter. We beg of him that he will make us new. And he does so. Let me read to you from Acts uh, 9 and 15. Acts 9 and 15. But, but the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul this was. He was a chosen vessel of God. God did the same with us, created us as vessels of honour. And it is into our vessel that he pours his graces. Is this new wine the gospel? Yes, because the faith of the gospel is the faith of Jesus Christ. 
Is this new wine the blood of Jesus Christ? Yes, because we cannot have eternal life in us unless we drink of his blood, as it were. Is this new wine Jesus Christ himself? Yes, because he lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And not only did he make us into new vessels, he promises that we will endure forever. It's true as we live in this dual nature of the, the new creature and the remnants of sinfulness in us, it is appointed unto us to die. But Jesus promises that all who believe on him will rise again and you, believer, will awaken. There will be a judgment, but one that you will have no reason to fear. The not guilty verdict has already been decided. And while other vessels, dishonourable and useless to God, will be smashed to pieces, you will remain as a vessel of his glory forever. May our wonderful Saviour comfort you in the days ahead with these words of his. Amen.